This is episode number 38 with Dr. Terry Walls. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe to uncover the habits, mindsets, tools, and rituals that they have used to become world-class so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. She is the author of The Walls Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine, and the cookbook The Walls Protocol, Cooking for Life, the revolutionary modern-day paleo plan to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions. She also hosts The Walls Protocol Seminar every August, where anyone can learn how to implement the protocol with ease and success. Now, in today's episode, you are going to hear her amazing story about healing from multiple sclerosis. But know that autoimmune issues are very common, a little too common for my liking. So this episode is for everyone because it's about optimizing your life and health with food. In today's episode, we chat about why she only eats one meal a day, the best anti-aging secret, how she healed from secondary progressive MS, how to create health and cook for life, the biggest thing you need to remove from your diet to help you thrive, what a ketogenic diet is and the pros and cons of it, how to get your hormones back on track, the top things you need to do for your health and to give you vitality, why avoiding lectins may be the one thing you need to do, plus so much more. For everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 38. And without further ado, let's bring on the amazing and super inspiring Dr. Terry Walls. Terry, it is so great to have you on the show. I'm so excited. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Actually, it'd just be a glass of water. I I tend to eat only one meal a day. Wow. Okay. And what time do you usually eat that meal? I typically will eat it uh, when I get home from uh, work. So uh, I got home uh, today. And uh, so this is my breakfast, lunch, and supper all in one meal. Um, And uh, again, I I, I drink water. Um, And uh, we had a a huge uh, salad, which uh, would have been bok choy, uh, and some fresh greens uh, from my garden. Uh, and on that, I'd have uh, some fresh garlic, uh, again, for my garden. Uh, we made uh, cauliflower um, uh, rice, uh, uh, which is a mixture of cauliflower, leeks, uh, and uh, uh, mushrooms that uh, I uh, have thinly sliced. And uh, cook that uh, in some uh, clarified butter. Um, and then add fresh chopped uh, parsley. Um, and uh, then we had uh, poached uh, wild salmon. Uh, and I also went out again to my garden uh, and got some fresh uh, oregano, uh, lemon balm, and uh, basil uh, that I uh, blended up with uh, olive oil uh, and, and some more fresh garlic uh, and lime juice uh, to make a uh, pesto that I put over the salad uh, and the poached salmon. And I have uh, two big plates of salad. Uh, and uh, the uh, cauliflower rice, uh, and then uh, uh, salmon. And the fresh salmon's a little less than a, a size of, the, of um, a deck of playing cards with a, a little smaller than the palm of my hand. That's what I eat for a day. Uh, when we're done, I'll have uh, a few berries. Uh, I've, we've got some aronia bushes here. And so uh, these are really dark black, uh, very tart berries, sort of like uh, a cranberry. It's a solid berry. Uh, 
it's a deep, you know, great source of, uh, of uh, you know, the red-purple antioxidants. This sounds delicious, and I definitely want to come over to your place for a meal, especially because all your produce is straight from your garden. That's just absolutely amazing. So can you tell us why do you only eat one meal a day? When you have a longer period of uh, fasting between meals, uh, it sends some uh, important signals to your mitochondria uh, for the mitochondria to be more efficient in their operations. And you'll have more mitochondria per cell and they'll operate more efficiently. That means that uh, it's sort of like having the fuel of your engine in your car operating more efficiently. Um, so there's less um, oxidative stress, less toxic byproducts from my own internal uh, chemical factories. There's some great uh, evidence that eating one meal a day is a very nice anti-aging strategy. So I, I will, uh, during uh, the week, uh, probably anywhere from four to seven days a week, I'll just have uh, one meal a day. And you don't get hungry throughout the day at all? No, not at all. And the reason uh, people get hungry would be that their insulin uh, level is high, causing their blood sugar to crash low. Uh, and that creates, uh, it, when your blood sugar swings between high numbers and low numbers, uh, you'll end up with uh, a lot of craving and hunger. If your blood sugar is really uh, uh, quite stable because you have uh, what I call a low glycemic index diet, uh, eating once a day or twice a day or three times a day uh, is it, it, very comfortable. Uh, or even fasting for a couple of days uh, tends to be very comfortable. So your story is pretty incredible, and you are known around the world for healing progressive multiple sclerosis. Can you take us back and tell us about that time in your life when you were diagnosed and how you healed and how you got to this place where you're at right now? When I was diagnosed, that was in 2000. At that time, I'm an academic internal medicine physician, um, and uh, I was still physically uh, quite active, uh, uh, biking uh, and uh, jogging and skiing, uh, but I developed uh, problems with uh, stumbling uh, and some weakness in my uh, left leg. I had a big workup uh, and was diagnosed with initially relapsing remitting MS, uh, and I decided to treat my disease aggressively, went out uh, to the Cleveland Clinic, which is a uh, internationally recognized center here in the U.S., saw their best people, took the newest drugs. And still within three years of diagnosis, my disease had converted to something called uh, progressive, secondary progressive MS. And in that phase of the disease, my physicians told me that functions once lost uh, would be gone forever. Um, and that, um, I, I, so I took chemotherapy in an attempt to slow the decline. I continued to decline. Then I took Tizabri, uh, that first new biologic. Um, but continued to decline. Uh, that was pulled from the market, and I switched to an, a different disease-modifying drug. So by 2004, um, it was apparent that the best conventional medicine could not stop this decline into a likely bedridden and potentially demented life. I was also having progressive uh, problems with uh, neuropathic pain related to my MS. I, and so that's when I began using PubMed.gov and started searching uh, for what else I could be doing. I would eventually uh, start experimenting with vitamins and supplements based on what I had learned um, from the mouse models studies of, of uh, mouse models of MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Lou Gehrig's disease, Huntington's disease. Uh, and found that the supplements slowed my decline, but they did not cause me to improve. Uh, my Cleveland Clinic physicians had told me about the paleo diet, and actually they had told me about that uh, in 2002, and I had, after 20 years of being a vegetarian, I had gone back to eating meat, uh, and although I had continued to decline, I stayed with it because I figured it could take a really long time to repair all the damage, and at least I was doing something. Uh, and then, you know, as I said, the following year I needed the wheelchair. I uh, took the chemotherapy. 
uh, started experimenting and figured out that uh, this targeted vitamin supplement regimen was very helpful. At least uh, I could function a little bit better on the days that I uh, took those. Uh, by the summer of 2007, I was so ill, I could not sit up anymore um, in a regular chair. I could be in a special recliner uh, or I was in bed. I could walk very short distances using two walking sticks. I was beginning to have brain fog, uh, and I knew that I would probably have to take medical disability finally. Um, and that's when I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I took their course on neuroprotection, had a longer list of vitamins and supplements to take, uh, which I added, uh, but was still declining. And, and then I had a, a really big aha moment. I should redesign my diet instead of just relying on all these supplements. I should reorganize my Paleolithic diet to stress these nutrients. Uh, and I, I did that. And it's really quite striking. Uh, within three months, my fatigue was dramatically lessened. My mental clarity uh, uh, markedly improving. Uh, my pain was diminishing. Uh, at six months, I was um, walking with a cane. Uh, at nine months, I got up on my uh, bike and pedaled around the block for the first time uh, in about six years. Uh, and at 12 months, I did a... Uh, 20-mile bike ride with my family. So this really changed how I understood disease and health. It would ultimately change how I practice medicine. It would change the focus of my research uh, and, you know, really changed what I was doing in life. Uh, and I ended up creating this uh, mission of teaching my medical colleagues uh, in the lay public uh, that uh, creating health is our best treatment for probably nearly all of our chronic diseases, and that we do that best by addressing diet and lifestyle. When you kind of came out with this, how did your colleagues respond? Uh, at first, people thought it was just stunning that I'm up walking around again, uh, so they're very excited about that. Uh, and then when I started changing my focus in clinic and prescribing less, you know, many fewer drugs... And I started talking about food and, and vegetables and fish oil and B vitamins. Uh, some of my physician partners complained to the chief of staff, so I ended up having to go meet with him and uh, review what I was doing, the scientific papers. Uh, and we had several conversations, and uh, you know, I got my chief of staff fully on board. Uh, and so his response would be, you know, look, uh, vegetables are pretty safe. If she ever hurts anyone, we'll do a peer review and we'll sort it out that way, but if she wants to talk about vegetables, she can. Um, but that was it, was, it was very interesting. So, you know, clearly uh, there's some pushback. Uh, and I did have to learn how to be very careful how to talk about this, how to document it in the medical record. Um, so uh, I shifted from saying that I was treating disease to I'm creating health. We're going to create the best health we can given your circumstances. And as a side effect, you might need fewer medicines. So I, I became much more focused on teaching people that I was creating health and I was letting their other physicians treat their diseases. But if we improve their health, likely they would need uh, lower doses of their medications and then potentially fewer medications. Let's talk about food and cooking for life and health. So often people just want to be told what to eat or what's right for them and their body, but everyone is so different. So how do you approach this? I did this in my book and I do this in my clinic. Uh, uh, some key things I need to know is, uh, is the person a meat eater or not? If they're vegetarian or vegan, are they doing that for uh, health reasons, or are they doing that for their spiritual um, and religious beliefs? Are they a ketogenic uh, person? They want to, uh, they're into ketosis for whatever reason. Uh, and then uh, I help them design a diet that will make sure they're going to get the uh, nutrients their brain and uh, mitochondria need. So everybody still is going to be uh, having a lot more vegetables green, sulfur, color vegetables. I'll have to make sure they have uh, good high-quality protein, either as a meat eater or as a non-meat eater. If they're vegetarian, uh, then we have to think about uh, issues related to lectin exposures, uh, etc. 
so this real, I, I focus on nutrient density for the cells uh, in a very particular way, which is why I, I've got vegetables in a very particular configuration. And then I want to be sure that people have sufficient meat, uh, and I want to be sure that they have sufficient fat and the right proportion of omega-6 and omega-3 fats, um, because uh, we need fats uh, for our brain, because our, our brain is so uh, dependent on fat. So food, it can be confusing, but you're in a unique position to study what actually works and not just go off the latest fad. So in your work as a clinical professor of medicine, what have you seen is the lowest hanging fruit that everyone sees benefit with when they remove from their diet? Sugar. Removing sugar. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that is the first thing to do. Um, and then, uh, so removing sugar helps shift which bacteria and yeast will grow in your bowels. When we eat a lot of sugar, when we eat a lot of flour-based uh, foods, we fertilize the sugar-loving yeast and bacteria that are relatively new uh, to humans, to our human ecology, our human ecosystem. Uh, and these sugar-loving yeast and bacteria are really very uh, disease-promoting. And there's a lot of scientific evidence for the ketogenic diet, which doesn't have any sugar in it. And I've discussed this on the show with Dr. Joseph McCullough and Nora Gagadis and Dave Asprey. Why is this approach getting such great results for some people? The ketogenic diet mimics uh, fasting uh, in a sense. Uh, and as I mentioned, I, I like to go eat just once a day. It's a very potent anti-aging uh, prospect. It shifts a lot of the signals in the body and the brain into more of a repair mode, repair function. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and it was originally studied in the 1920s to control seizures as discovered by some physicians uh, in the Mayo Clinic. Uh, we next then discovered that it was very effective for uh, brain cancer treatment. Uh, and now it's being studied for things like plastic ovarian disease, uh, metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, and other forms of cancer. Uh, a number of uh, people have been studying it for uh, dementia. Uh, some of the other uh, neurodegenerative diseases where you have shrinking brains. I study it in the setting uh, of MS. Uh, and so uh, there's certainly a number of clinical indications where it looks like it's very helpful. Uh, there are some challenges uh, with ketogenic diets in that uh, when the diet is you know 70 to 90% fat, uh, you have to be very careful about maintaining nutrient density. And you need to be careful about maintaining uh, enough fiber so you have a healthy microbiome. So it certainly can be done, um, but uh, I, I, you know, and I, I try to be very careful as I designed mine and tested it uh, to make sure that it, it was still nutrient dense and that we had a sufficient fiber to maintain a healthy microbiome. Mm, it's so important, isn't it? Yeah, you know, a, a lot of folks are are into the ketogenic diet. Uh, and they restrict their calories, uh, rely a lot on cream, butter, eggs. Um, and because they, they aren't as careful about their uh, nutrient density, uh, they can end up uh, feeling great initially in the first year, because you do feel great initially in ketosis. Uh, but then as they deplete their micronutrients, they can end up slowly becoming ill and because it comes on so slowly, uh, they may lack insight that it was because their version of the ketogenic diet wasn't sufficiently nutrient-dense. Mm, there's a lot of different opinions when it comes to women and ketosis. Like Dave Asprey and Dr. McCullough recommend cyclical ketosis, which is where you're in ketosis for five or six days and then you do the refeeding on the off days. Whereas Nora Gagaudis feels that the best approach is to stay in ketosis and, you know, starchy carbohydrates aren't necessary for most people. What's your experience with women and ketosis and hormones? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you go into ketosis, it's, uh, that will send a number of signals to your body uh, 
that, okay, I'm in a prolonged fast. It's winter. We don't have enough of the usual nutrients. So this is not a good time for reproduction. Um, and so my uh, estrogen status is going to shift my ability to ovulate uh, and to uh, get pregnant and sustain a pregnancy. Or if I'm a guy, uh, have uh, fully viable sperm, uh, all of that shifts. And so fertility declines. In my practice, I uh, tell people if you're trying to get pregnant, ketosis is not for you. If you have a um, medical condition for which ketosis uh, is, is a good decision, then ketosis may still be appropriate. I, I also you know, make the observation that um, free-living humans don't voluntarily go into ketosis long-term. We will eat carbs, or if we eat a high-protein diet, our body will make those high-protein into carbs. Uh, and we'll be out of ketosis. Uh, even our northern friends, the uh, Arctic Inuit, uh, they get to have summer a couple months out of the year. So I, I, I've shifted my thinking that seasonal ketosis may be uh, most optimal unless you have a, a strong medical reason that ketosis is good for you. If you're just wanting optimal health, uh, maybe uh, being in ketosis during your winter time for your ethnic background would be uh, more physiologic, more normal. And then getting to have your summer that would match your ethnic background uh, for however many months that would be. So I, I like to do ketosis for uh, three to five months out of the year and then uh, just have a low glycemic index diet now uh, the other months. Mm, that's really interesting. Hormone issues, I feel like, are way too common. You know, the women that I s speak to who have no period uh, and who haven't had a period for one or two or three years, it seems to be very common these days. What have you seen to be the most effective to rebalance their hormonal system? Um, so let me sort of run through the reasons people uh, uh, often get into hormonal uh, problems. Uh, the first one, uh, it, uh, very common, uh, we're, we're so indoctrinated that fat is a problem. We went on this very low cholesterol diet uh, and we drove our blood cholesterol values really low. But we forgot that to make our sex hormones uh, and to make vitamin D, and estrogen, and testosterone, and progesterone, they all are made out of cholesterol. Uh, and so if you drive your blood cholesterol low because of diet or medication or both, you can't make enough of your sex hormones in order to have uh, a normal functioning ovary and normal periods. So uh, that's a very common problem. Another uh, very common problem is something called cortisol steel, where um, the stress levels are so high that my body uh, has a lot of threats perceived uh, by my brain, and my brain sending signals to my adrenals to pump out lots and lots of stress hormone because I perceive this acute stress and this chronic stress. As my adrenals do that, they suck most of the cholesterol that's available into this stress hormone pathway to make more cortisol. When that happens, there's not enough cholesterol left in the system to make enough estrogen, progesterone, uh, or if you're a guy, testosterone, which now is going to have a big impact on libido, on uh, 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 ovulation, on the ability to uh, successfully implant an embryo or sustain an embryo and fetus. Uh, so, and then the third most common problem is that we live, we've had this wonderful chemical revolution, which revolutionized um, how we farm. So, uh, food productivity is much, much higher. It has revolutionized how we manufacture products. So, we have 
uh, many more manufacturing processes that are far more efficient. So we have all these wonderful gadgets in our lives. Um, and it's revolutionized uh, industry, food processing, agriculture. But it's also made tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of new compounds that inter interact with our biology. And some of these compounds are, have uh, um, shapes that interact with our hormone receptors in our cells. And so because those hormone receptors have gotten stimulated, that very subtle dance of the hormone balance that's in parts per million uh, in our bloodstream uh, gets affected. Uh, and this subtle communication that goes on between our brain, um, our adrenals, our ovaries, our thyroid glands, our fat cells, is no longer in fine tune. So instead of having a beautiful symphony, we begin to have noise. Um, and it's because of all these chemical compounds that we've added uh, into our environment that are interacting with our hormone receptors in our body and confusing uh, that messaging. I, I think that's why the uh, sperm counts globally have, have declined uh, really quite dramatically. And that's why fertility rates um, are declining. That's why in, in many of our westernized societies, there are ever higher rates of women requiring assisted reproductive technologies to get pregnant. So what are some of the things that if someone is currently experiencing what you're explaining, what are some of the things that they can do today to really start to turn this around? I was just giving a, uh, one of my many talks that I give uh, at our local uh, organic grocer. Uh, and uh, there the uh, fine young woman who was introducing me was explaining to the audience that she'd had infertility, had seen the assisted reproductive experts in the community, and then at the university center, spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to get pregnant. And uh, the specialist said, you know, there's nothing we can do. We've done everything that we can, including IVF, uh, many cycles. Uh, and then she had heard me speak, and I'd encourage her to try adopting the Wallace Protocol and to give it 100 days at 100%. And she did. And she got pregnant. And she's now had uh, two kids. Uh, and so really uh, addressing, uh, creating as much health as you can uh, by optimizing your diet and lifestyle uh, is a, a great first step. Reducing your toxin exposures, improving your detox pathways, uh, uh, engaging in a stress-reducing practice to get rid of that cortisol steel, and then having a maximally nutrient-dense diet, uh, like the diet that, I've, that I teach, uh, is a great strategy. And if we're cooking for life and health, what do you feel are the top three keys that we need to know? Get rid of sugar. Uh, if you have a chronic health problem, I would also get rid of uh, gluten. Uh, and so that's wheat, rye, barley. Uh, and if you're open to it, I'd recommend a grain-free life or at least a gluten-free and limited exposure to grain. Uh, lots of vegetables. Uh, if you're a, a gentleman, uh, that'd be nine cups. Uh, if, since most of the world doesn't use cups, I think of a dinner plate as three cups, so three platefuls of uh, vegetables in a day between greens, uh, sulfur-rich in the cabbage, onion, mushroom family, uh, and in the deeply pigmented categories. Uh, and then um, uh, protein, um, but I, I'm not into high amounts of protein. A lot of the paleo uh, world is high protein. Um, I, I think that's a problem as well. I'd much rather it be sufficient protein so uh, like two 
uh, decks of playing cards in a day is, is plenty of protein. If, if you're vegetarian or vegan, uh, then you need to have uh, gluten-free grains uh, and legumes that have a complete protein. Okay. What about, you know, fermented vegetables and seaweeds and those sorts of things, adding those into your diet? And what can we add in? Humanity has been using fire for about 100,000 years to cook our food. Um, And about that same time period, we also began to ferment uh, food. And we're able, using salt and fermentation, let us store food. So we've had a long, long history of fermented foods, which helped maximize the diversity in uh, of the bacteria living in our gut. I'm a huge fan of fermented food. Um, and so my advice is people begin uh, having a variety of fermented foods, small volumes, uh, increase them uh, uh, gradually according to what you can tolerate. I love fermented foods, and I, and I can have a whole plate full of kimchi or sauerkraut, uh, and I love it. You can't start out with a whole plate full. you got to start out with just a forkful and work your way up. Uh, kombucha uh, can be very helpful. Uh, I like to make uh, uh, coconut milk, uh, kefirs, uh, and yogurts uh, as another option. I'm not at all fond of fermented dairy because I, I think uh, dairy has uh, a number of um, uh, growth-promoting uh, compounds that increase the risk of tumors uh, and cancers. Uh, and can, in the susceptible person, uh, increase the risk of uh, uh, neurological problems. Uh, so, so I'm not keen on uh, dairy ferments. Uh, seaweed are uh, very helpful uh, because it uh, gives us um, more minerals. Uh, and because our soils, it's thanks to the uh, turn away from organic farming and crop rotation, our soils are... Uh, many of the farming practices uh, in Australia and in uh, Europe and uh, here in the Americas rely on chemical fertilizers, which can in- increase the pounds uh, or tonnage uh, of produce per acre, but does not increase the amount of nutrients per acre. Uh, these soils are becoming depleted in minerals. And the foodstuffs are becoming depleted in minerals. And also vitamins, at least according to the USDA studies here in the U.S. And I expect similar would be found in Australia uh, because the Australian farmers are likewise uh, relying more and more on the uh, chemical fertilizers and have turned away from uh, uh, crop rotation uh, as a way of uh, improving the uh, nutrients uh, of the soil. I guess that's why you grow your own, isn't it? That's why I grow my own, absolutely. Plus, it's fun. You know, it, it's it's a great activity. Uh, it's fun. Uh, it was. Uh, I really enjoyed teaching my kids to garden, um, and I, I just. I grew up on a farm. I still I uh, still love growing things. When I was growing up on the farm, I was sort of resentful of all the work, uh, but once I left the farm, I was in college. I missed it immensely, uh, and then began to pay a lot more attention to uh, growing things. You mentioned before about lectins, and Dr. Stephen Gundry has a popular book called The Plant Paradox, and it's all about lectins that are naturally occurring proteins found in plants, seeds, nuts, and legumes that they use to protect themselves from being eaten. And he talks a lot about the role of lectins in autoimmunity. How have you also found this to be with your work? Lectins uh, in the genetically susceptible person can certainly increase the inflammation, make uh, the disease more resistant to therapy uh, and more aggressive. In my clinical practice, um, what we've and also did this in my popular book, uh, I created a, a number of levels to my dietary program um, so that people could transition from their standard westernized diet full of sugar and white flour that's grain-based uh, into one that has uh, gluten-free, dairy-free, egg-free, uh, lots of vegetables. And let's say for about 80% of folks, that will be sufficient that their health is dramatically better. And that's all they need to do. 
or we may f- need to further restrict the lectin exposure and reduce uh, the amount that they're eating even further. Or we may have to go all the way uh, into the elimination diet and take out all legumes, nuts, seeds, uh, and nightshades. That's a really tough diet to start on. Uh, and, and there are some people who have uh, severe rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, that I'll, I'll urge them to start there. But if they're not ready, I will work with a person at where they're at, and we will work towards that. Um, but certainly, uh, going grain-free, grain legume-free, uh, take out all the nuts, seeds, and I also take out eggs uh, and dairy and nightshades uh, would reduce the lectins and give you the best chance of recovery. But only if you'll do it at 100%. If you can only do it 90%, uh, that's not going to be very effective. And, and my point of view is that it's so much easier for people to be successful if they figure out the plan that they could do at 100% and do it together as a family. If it means that you have to do this incrementally, start out with a level one of my diet, get and see what kind of health benefits you get with that. And they're like, well, you know, I'm not as good as I want to be. And so I'll continue on this journey and keep uh, moving uh, in a more healthful fashion. Uh, if you want to do uh, Gundry's work, but only do it 70% of the time, it's not going to be very helpful. So I, I, I'm much more inclined to work with the individual uh, and use what I call motivational interviewing, sort out what uh, the person is willing to do and commit to at 100%. How would you know if you had a lectin issue without being tested? Some health challenge that goes away if you go on a lectin-free diet for 100 days and then you reintroduce and you feel markedly better, you reintroduce that lectin-rich food and you feel markedly worse. There's not an easy blood test for this. And because it's so nonspecific and it could be a, such a wide variety of symptoms, my advice is, um, if you have a chronic health challenge, then you want to use a diet and lifestyle program to begin improving uh, your health. And you're going to have to work with your uh, nutrition person, your health coach, or your integrated health uh, physician or uh, provider to decide which dietary plan you'd like to start with. Mm. What are your thoughts on the nightshades? I know you mentioned it before that um, that's something that you avoid and that's something that I've avoided for many, many years. But I was recently in Greece and I did have some and I didn't feel any different, but my husband definitely did. He really felt it. So what is it in the nightshades that are affecting us? It's the lectins, but can you explain what happens? This will have to do with the genetic vulnerability and the individual's reaction. So if I have eggplants, which I love, if I have a a little tiny amount, I I do okay. Like, you know, uh, a a tablespoon, a couple, uh, uh, that'd be fine. If I have a uh, big tablespoon, uh, you know, a nice size serving, um, my heart's going to begin to race. But I'm not, uh, and so I have some acute reactions. I'm like, okay, that's a pretty clear indication that that's revving up my um, system in an unhealthy way. If I have tomatoes, um, and I enjoy tomatoes, so I, I do grow heirloom tomatoes, and so I can have a fresh tomato slice with fresh pesto uh, once a week for about a month when my fresh uh, tomatoes are coming in, and I tolerate that fine. If I have tomato sauce every night uh, over my uh, yams or my spaghetti squash, um, by the second day, my face pain is turned on. So it's clearly revving up my inflammation, and it's doing so in my brain and my spinal cord. Uh, Peppers. If I don't have any seeds, just have the peppers. Doesn't bother me at all. So I can have, uh, and I grow uh, sweet red peppers, and I grow some hot peppers, uh, and that seems to give me no trouble whatsoever. 
uh, potatoes I've not eaten in a long time. So, um, I, although if I'm at someone's home and I just have, and they, and they made them because I know I'm gluten-free, dairy-free. And so they made potato dish and I'm like, okay, so I can eat that socially on occasion. I'm not going to get into trouble. So the, for many people, there is a lot of variability into which uh, do all four of the big nightshades bother them? Is it just one of the uh, food items from the nightshade group that are bothersome or not? So there's a high level of individual variability in terms of how much this will rev up your immune response. And if you don't eat it at all for a year, then you might tolerate, again, very modest exposures uh, once a, if you kept it to less than once a week, uh, and you might tolerate that well. Or um, you may have a, a much more severe reaction and never tolerate it. Uh, the folks with RA, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, they're likely, um, if they're sensitive to one of these uh, nightshade groups, to never tolerate it. Uh, at all. Um, in light, and the, um, I'd say the most irritating lectin uh, of the whole bunch appears to be the gliadin, uh, which is in the wheat, rye, barley. Uh, and for those folks, I, I would certainly encourage them to never try to re-challenge themselves. Mm, I'm curious to know what is one thing that you would like to improve or you're currently working on within yourself at the moment? My MS symptoms are really not an issue. The The current health challenge that I have is I've developed spinal stenosis, which means that uh, the nerve roots are uh, really squeezed. And I also developed some scoliosis in my spine. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is all somehow related to the uh, truncal weakness from my MS. So I've been spending, uh, for years, I've gone to physical therapy regularly to maintain, make sure I'm fully optimized. Now I'm really working on uh, the truncal strength uh, to uh, keep the uh, spinal stenosis and the back pain at bay. But actually, actually I'm doing really quite well. I, I've gotten... Uh, into having uh, so much pain from my back pain that it really become quite limiting. But in the last year, again, because of uh, very dedicated work on my core strengthening, I'm back up to being able to uh, take my you know, dog uh, for uh, a mile walk around the block. Um, I, I would ideally like to be able to uh, stand for all my lectures, but I'm thinking like, yeah, that maybe is not going to come back, but I'm just thrilled to be um, doing much better in terms of my back pain that I'm up walking around taking my dog for hikes again. Mm, that is amazing. Now let's pretend you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides your books, is there one other book that you would choose for every high school student around the world to read? I'm going to say it's a book that's not quite been uh, written yet. Uh, it's a book that my daughter's working on, uh, Growing Strong, uh, which is uh, a uh, book about two families uh, with one family who has a number of health issues that is being helped by another family to learn how to use food uh, to restore their health. And uh, the healthy family is teaching the other family how to cook and grow their own food. Um, because I, I think, and the reason I think I, I would vote for this is our children are our future. And if we don't get our kids fired up about food as a critical part of our health and fired up about cooking and growing their own food, the, it, this is a disaster for the world. Too many of our children know only fast food, know nothing about cooking, know nothing about growing food, and are ill-equipped to know how to shop or cook food. So we need, we need to start getting 
all of our children excited about food as a means to uh, health. Uh, and so I'll put in a plug for my uh, daughter's um, Kickstarter campaign for children's book, Growing Strong. Sounds amazing. I can't wait to get it. When will it be out? Well, uh, so it depends. If, if, it get, if the funding comes through uh, by, at, I think she's got 23 days left on the Kickstarter. If it comes through, then she'll finish the book and the book will get uh, developed, printed and shipped to all the backers probably in March. If it doesn't get funded, uh, then uh, she's out of luck and she'll have to move on to another, another interesting project. Oh, fingers crossed. That is the beauty of the Kickstarter campaigns. It lets uh, creatives like uh, Zeb uh, to put, pitch an, an idea out. And if it resonates with the, with the public, they help fund the effort in the book or the uh, artwork uh, or the music gets published or produced. That sounds amazing. We'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out. Yep, I'll send, I'll send you the link afterwards so you have it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Now, I'm a massive fan of morning routines and how people prime themselves for the day. So do you have any sort of morning routine that you follow? I know it's probably different every day, but what are some of the non-negotiables that you have? Um, so I, I, I get up, uh, I go downstairs and I invert. I have an inversion table. Uh, so I do my positive affirmations and I invert and then I uh, get up and I do a, a uh, in the weightlifting routine. So I go three cycles of inversions and lifting free weights. Uh, then I do some hula hooping, which is great for core. And then I have some mat exercises uh, that my physical therapist has me do again for uh, my core strength to deal with the spinal stenosis and the scoliosis. And then I get into my pool. I'm, um, I have an endless pool in my home. My uh, mom had encouraged me to put that in as I was Becoming disabled from my MS, I and uh, so I've uh, been swimming for a long time for that. And then after I'm done with my swim, I, I get into uh, my sauna, and I'll do a sauna for 20 to 40 minutes, uh, and then I take a shower and uh, bike into work. And do you have an infrared sauna or um, uh, near infrared? Yeah, near infrared. Great. And do you do that every day? I will do that. Uh, the sauna, I may or may not do. Uh, I would say uh, the sauna is probably five days a week. Uh, when I was in the midst of my book tour, I was doing it every day of the week uh, to deal with all of the air travel that I was doing. It's really important, isn't it? Yeah, you know, uh, air travel is fairly toxic, at, at least to me. So I really had to uh, aggressively, aggressively detox before my book came out, and then uh, for several months after my book was released. What are three things you are most recently grateful for? I'm a massive fan of gratitude, so I'd love to hear what's really current for you right now. You know, I'm really grateful for my uh, research team. Uh, I, and I, I was just talking with all my team, making sure that everything is uh, working as optimally uh, as it can. Uh, so I, I'm grateful for them because I'm going to change medical practice. I have to have published research. Uh, I am uh, grateful uh, for my two kids who give me a lot of joy uh, in, uh, in watching them transition to adults. And then my uh, most uh, profound gratitude, of course, uh, is for my wife, uh, who has helped me through the most difficult times in my life and gives me a lot of joy uh, every day. Beautiful. And I've just got a couple more rapid fire questions. In your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Stop sugar. Yeah, love it. What is one of the most important things that we can do for our wealth? Stay healthy. And what is one of the most important things that we can do for love? Love is a verb. Uh, so you have to actively show uh, the people that you love what are the things that you can do that demonstrate your love. Mm, it's often 
as well, those little things that are so easy to do, they're so easy not to do, but they make such a difference. Mm -hmm. Finally, what is one thing that I can do personally and listeners today can do to serve you? Stay well and think about uh, backing my daughter's uh, book so growing strong can happen. Mm, Beautiful. Well, I just wanted to thank you and acknowledge you for all the work that you do and all the great research that you have done to provide us with the Walls Protocol and all of your other amazing resources that you've put out there. I'm very grateful that there's people like you doing the research and blazing the trail. So thank you so much. What a beautiful, gentle, soft and wise woman. My goodness, I'm just so grateful for the work that she's doing in the world. So please, if you know anyone that this would really benefit them, please forward it on to them. And if you loved today's episode as much as I did, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review because that means we can inspire even more people together. And don't forget to tell me on social media Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, who you would like me to interview and make sure you tag me so that I can see who you want me to have on the show. And for everything that we mention in today's podcast, you can check out in the show notes and that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 38. And you can check out all my other podcasts there too. Don't forget, my next book, Open Wide, is coming out in December, which I am so excited to share with you guys. I cannot wait. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of right now that would really benefit from this episode, please go ahead and share it with them now, or you can screenshot this and share it on your social media platforms. I would be so grateful. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.